You are listening to the Therefore I Geek podcast, episode 55. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek. I'm Andrew. I'm Tracy. I'm Ira Glass. And on this episode of This American Life, I Stalin, swear to God, was he really... <laughs> one more time. That's it. That You got one more strike. One more strike. But it's already been three. Whole, I had a whole line, too. I was like, Stalin, was he really that bad of a guy or just a grumpy grandpa? That would have been a good line. Oh, well. <laughs> Joseph here. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're, I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm doing very well. I'm still in the middle of moving and packing and all that kind of crap and i'm i'm glad you guys were ready because i i got up and then my alarm clock my phone was at 10 o'clock but my alarm clock wasn't my, and Donna was like hey it's, it's spring forward it was like oh get, put the stuff together and get onto the show so i'm nice. ready yeah daylight savings time is a bitch mm-hmm. i was wondering i had to get up and do breakfast with some friends and they are leaving town so they wanted to do it like super duper early and i I kept sitting up like my alarm was going off every 15 minutes and I was just kept sitting up and thinking, I'm just tired still. I don't know why I'm, you know, usually okay at this time. <laughs> That's why yeah. it didn't occur to me until like an hour later when I was leaving the house. I was like, Oh wait, it's still dark outside Nice. or not dark, but like, you know? Yeah. So today's topic uh, is going to be, this is really our first political esque discussion. Uh, I think it's a topic that's near to the, at least the three of us and that is free speech. So to start, I will uh, freely disclose I do donate to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, which is a First Amendment advocacy group. Uh, I don't know if either either of you have anything else like that. I I think I would have to disclose my support of uh, fire, um, freedom for individual rights, and education. Okay. Tracy? And I don't donate to either of those or anything <laughs> else. I just like to use our explicit <clears throat> So to, 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 just just to start and put us all on kind of the, the same footing here, obviously the freedom of speech here in the United States is, is based on the First Amendment. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read that just so we're all real clear on what, what it does and does not say. So the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right to the, of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Short, sure. sweet, to the point. Yeah. So, sounds like poetry to me. So I, I, getting started, in general, what does freedom of speech mean to you guys? Well, this, this is interesting because you started with the First Amendment, and there actually needs to be a separation between the First Amendment and, and the free expression thereof, right? So the First Amendment is the protection of, of the of the right to be uh, expressive from the government, right? And there are some notable exceptions. So, like the classic notable exception is you can't divulge troop movements during wartime, right? Do you remember a couple of years ago during the Iraq War, Geraldo drew where he was on on the sand when he was yep. embedded? Then you can't do that. That does that's not covered. The kind of stuff that I talk about is a little bit more, especially nowadays, is a little bit more absent what the government 
can or can't do. Although I think the First Amendment is a good, um, I guess the word would be a good starting point. But I kind of use it as free inquiry, the, the, the freedom to think and ask questions and say sometimes really crazy, stupid things in, in the public sphere. And to, in, in the case of our, I think, our general discussion in terms of comic books, where I think it is really important, uh, is the freedom to write and draw and say what you want in the medium of comic books with A, without interference from the government, but B, also without interference from the mob. There's a great uh, discussion between Christopher Hitchens and uh, Sanchi Trandor on YouTube where he, he talks about every journalist thinks of himself as, as going to be a martyr if the FBI tries to shut him down, and he, that's what he's looking for. But that's not the case most of the time. His editor will usually come to him and say, I'm getting pressure from the community. And that's, I think, today primarily where the fight sits, not so much with the government, although if we get into college campuses it does, but it's, it's where the community's tolerance for unpopular opinions sits. I agree with what you said about a starting point. Um, for me, the First Amendment gives me the freedom to my own opinion. So I get to hold that, even if it's unpopular, even if it's wrong. That it's a, I'm allowed to have that opinion. I'm allowed to express that opinion. Now, I have to say that I draw a very distinct line. So while I do agree with you, dude, that it's becoming a problem that our communities are putting so much pressure on people to conform to a fairly prudish a definition of what you can and cannot say. But I also don't think that the First Amendment necessarily gives us any protection there. If we need protection from the community, it's going to come from somewhere other than the First Amendment. Well, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, yeah, so I don't want to say the First Amendment protects us from the community. So let's just use colleges because that's the one that's been on my head in my mind for the longest is a, a public university yeah. has to conform to the First Amendment. That's the absolutely. rule. Um, and there's I don't have my notes in front of me, but there's at least two or three Supreme Court cases that I could read, uh, decisions I could read to you, um, and there's a great video on them from Greg Lukianoff, the uh, president of FIRE, he goes through them, uh, where he explains that. Um, now, public, uh, private universities are a little bit different. They don't have to conform to the First Amendment at all. However, if they have, if, as you sign the contract, uh, I think, I mean, you know, maybe William and Mary might have this, is if you sign the contract, they might say, we adhere to the First Amendment here at William & Mary, that's part of our, our job, right? Interestingly enough, they don't just adhere to the First Amendment, they also adhere to the Second, which a mm -hmm. lot of people don't think that you can bring a gun on a college campus. Yes, you absolutely can, as long as you have the correct permits. There you go. And here in California, uh, Stanford University, there's a law called the Leonard Law that requires non-sectarian colleges to adhere to the First Amendment. So if we were going to go to Liberty University, they probably say on the outset, and I, I believe this to be the case, you know, your First Amendment, no, they have, it doesn't work here because they actually have a statement of principles because they are, are they a religious school, you know, and these religious schools might have that. So, yes, so the First Amendment as a piece of law protects you from the government or public institutions. The community, a lot more tricky, and that's where the fight usually shows up. It's not so much can you say it, but should you say it, and what are the rules of the mob? Yeah, I agree. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially now, like you mentioned, the college campus things. I know we've seen a lot of videos lately having mm -hmm. to do with the the protected speech zones and then literally yeah. mobs of people chasing off others they don't agree with. 
I think that's... And it should be noted, yeah, those safe space, uh, I'm sorry, free speech zones, those are laughably unconstitutional, right? They are, everyone that gets taken to court, it loses badly. For some reason, schools keep using them, and their lawyers keep defending them. And the famous case is one that Fire took up at the University of Cincinnati, where the kids went, uh, we want to hand out a right-to-work pamphlet, uh, or, or get a petition. You had to get it signed, petitioning the government for redress of grievances. And the University of Cincinnati says, well, you can only do it in this free speech zone, which is like one-tenth of one percent of the college area. And if, apparently there was some uh, calculation done. And if every kid wanted to exercise their free speech at the same time in that zone, you'd have to crush the student body down to the density of uranium-238. So it was... It was <laughs> Ooh, heavy. Yeah, you couldn't do it. So what they did is they 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 passed out their pamphlets in the open campus, and they were promptly reprimanded. I don't think arrested, and they sued the school, and and Fire said, "Listen, you're going to go to court. You're going to get laughed at. You're going to lose." And the school basically, to quote Greg Lukianoff, said, "Nah, and they went to court and they lost. So that yeah, that that's the problem. The other thing you're talking about is what's called the heckler's veto, and and again to kind of beat up on Greg Lukianoff a little or to you draw from him mostly because since Christopher Hitchens has been dead, I think he, uh, Lukianov, and Jonathan Rausch are the two great living defenders of free expression today. And, and it's, um, it's difficult to comment on current events when you've been dead for several years. Yeah, although, I mean, the stuff Hitch has said, if you go back and look at him, damn, they still, from 2006, they're still pretty damn relevant. But uh, where was I? I was on Free Speech Zones, and I moved to you're heckler's about the hecklers. Veto. hecklers. The heckler's veto. This one, I think, is where the fight really sits, not so much on safe spaces. The heckler's veto, is it legitimate, when it can be used, and who can use it? Um, and there's a couple really strong examples. Uh, Ann Coulter, back in 2007, I think it was in Canada, um, a couple, uh, a guy named uh, Warren Farrell in Canada, he was like a, a kind of like a men's rights activist. He got, he, fire alarms got pulled on his event. Or people shouting down Ray Kelly um, at Brown a few years ago at, um, during a Q&A. The idea is that we're so bothered by what you have to say, and I think this is going to dovetail into the discussion of comics, is we're so bothered. The, the thing is these people are like, this is what bothers us. We are so bothered by this. We are going to full-on Hulk out and interrupt the proceedings so that they cannot go forward, and that is our First Amendment right. Well, and this just happened at a Bernie Sanders rally. Remember when the um, there were a couple of girls with the Black Lives Matter movement that came in and interrupted Bernie Sanders? And this only happened, what, like a month and a half, two months ago? Yeah, so uh, um, that happened. Late 2015. That happened to Bernie, and actually something similar happened. Something similar happened to Hillary Clinton as well. I think yeah. something happened to Trump Friday at Chicago. People well, he canceled up. it. Yeah, he, he canceled well, his rally based, well, that was based on knowing that people were going to show up and do the same thing. Yeah. And that's part of the problem is, yes, you can protest, but, and yes, you have the right to, but interrupting someone from disseminating inter information to people who are interested in hearing that information, I find rather repugnant. Oh, absolutely. It's completely repulsive. So uh, kind of a, a, as a general thought, you can't use your freedom of speech to impede upon someone else's ability to exercise their freedom of speech. Yeah, so here's here's two good examples from Greg Lukianoff's book uh, Unlearning Liberty, which is which is packed away somewhere in these pile of book boxes that I have, so I can't read it in front of you. Um, there was a pro-life display 
on a campus somewhere, and and I'll I'll he describes it somewhere on YouTube, so we'll put it in the show notes. Where prof- uh, these pro-life kids had put little crosses to represent, you know, every day a thousand babies are born, something like that. And this professor went, "We're going to go use our First Amendment freedoms and smash this display." And they went out there and they ripped the whole thing down. And there was this deep confusion that their free speech required them to destroy the free speech of another group of people who had a point of view that they may not have liked and they have thought was wrongheaded or misguided, but they destroyed it. And a similar incident happened again with pro-life where a teenager, it was a teenage girl, and I can't remember the campus it was on, had a, had a sign, a, a pro-life sign that may have shown something you know, like an aborted fetus or something, I'm not sure. And another person had taken it and ripped it down and like pushed her out of the way and shoved her. And it was like, yeah, you know, I, you, you may have free speech, but you're also a terrorist and I get to take away your sign. This is a deep confusion of what it is to uh, protest and engage in, in dialogue. Well, here's where this is this is the frustration for me, because um, I like a good debate when both sides are well informed. But it to me, I have to assume that these people have never actually read the First Amendment. Because I hear the word for the the term First Amendment thrown around in moments when I just I look at the person and I go, well, it's actually on the Internet, so I can't see them face to face. But I just go, what are you talking about? That's not even close. Yeah. And Tracy, I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. It's not so much that they don't know the First Amendment as they are and uh, a little clueless. And I don't mean to sound snide about this or, or, or too hoity-toity. A little clueless about the philosophy behind what free expression really was supposed to accomplish. And there's a great book that covers this. There's two great books that cover this, one from the 19th century and one from the 20th. And the 19th century book is called On Liberty, written by John Stuart Mill, and the one of the 20th century was written in the early 90s called Kindly Inquisitors, written by Jonathan Rausch. And those are the two great primers of why, yes, the First Amendment are important, but they really defend the idea of free expression. So in it, Mill will say, uh, and, and Hitchens kind of paraphrases it, imagine all the world and, and all the world's people are all agreeing on the one true beauty of one idea and that all the governments in the world have the backing of those people, yet there is one person who dissents from that idea. That dissenter requires extra protection because it must have taken a bit of work for him to come up with what he's just thinking. And that's basically what Mill's point was, and Rausch expands upon it in Kindly Kindly Inquisitors after the Salman Rushdie craziness. And, And that's, I think, where people get confused, is they don't understand the philosophy. They don't understand really what it's supposed to be there. It's, and you get this, these violent hecklers that show up in, at Trump rallies and want to beat people up. And it's the idea is, no, you're doing it wrong. Free speech was the replacement for punching someone in the nose for saying something right. you don't like. That's the point. And you have every opportunity to go and have an equally large rally right down the street where you disseminate your own views on the topic. It, it, that's the thing is just like the example that you came up with with the, the pro-life crosses or whatever, the little display. Free speech does not, the First Amendment doesn't protect you from stomping all over someone else's expression. It allows you to go and produce another expression that is counter to whatever it is that you don't agree with. And that's totally fine. You're you're yeah. well within your rights, and if it's well argued, you may actually get some followers. 
Yeah, and, and the best example of this is the Westboro Baptist Church. And, and they went to the Supreme Court, and they won, and rightfully so. And, you know, it's, oh, they're disseminating all these hateful, yes, hateful, mean, nasty, bizarre religious reviews uh, of views. And they are. That's absolutely yeah. true there. However, go to their, I, I had an ex-girlfriend who went to their rallies. Go to their rallies. Those folks are outnumbered 500 to 1. They're outnumbered. So, yeah, you, you, they, they can sit where they are and have all these ridiculous signs. And you could cr be across the street with um, big signs. There's a, a video from the Cato Institute covering this, kind of. But the guy showed, um, you know, when Fred Phelps died, people were dancing on the man's grave. But one of the best signs is the beauty of free speech is um, guy had a sign right by the funeral saying, we're sorry for your loss. You know, that's the beauty of free expression, that you can do stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think you, you mentioned, like, you know, hateful speech and whatnot. Just because something is detestful to me or detestful to you does not mean it's not protected. Uh, um, right, and that, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's paraphrased. To be expressed. A great, right, well, and there's a great uh, portion at the end of uh, The People versus Larry Flint, mm -hmm. the, the Supreme Court, I mean, and obviously that, that deliberation, that, that's paraphrased, but it, it's given very well in terms of just because it's, it's distasteful does not mean it is not protected. And as long as these people aren't setting other people on fire or doing, you know, destroying pr private property or whatever, they're allowed to say what they want. And that I think that's another big point to make is that freedom of speech is just that and only that. You don't get to go destroy stuff. You don't get right. to punch another person in the face, as we mm -hmm. saw at the Trump rally and that kind of thing. You don't get to hurt someone else. You simply get to speak. Right. And, and the great example of this is in the 70s. Uh, prior to the Larry Flynn case, there was a case called Papish where this woman named Barbara Papish, I'm going to curse for a second, um, was part of a group called, like a radical group called Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers. That was the name of the group. She, and they, their rally had been broken up by some police officers or campus cops, and uh, they, they, the campus cops got away with it. They, no charges were written. And they drew a image, a cartoon, because I think this is going to dovetail into our discussion of comics pretty soon, uh, of police officers raping the Statue of Liberty. And that was see, deemed as patently offensive. And the point was, yes, it was offensive. That was the point. We were trying to make an offensive point to show how bad these guys were. And it's protected. And the Supreme Court held, yeah, offensive speech is due the most protection. So let's. Yeah. I'm going to push the conversation to comic books and, and comics is there are comics, and we know this, that are out there that are not Superman and Batman, but are patently offensive. There are violent comics, there are sexually violent comics, there are sexually explicit comics that go, because they're comics and they are drawn, they have all sorts of very bizarre, violent scenarios that would make your skin crawl in most cases. And I happen to have read most of these things. And, and, and these are due the protection, because comic books are, comics are not just the periodicals we read or the trade paperbacks, they're also the political cartoons that were used to topple political bosses like Boss Tweed, yes. like like Prophet Muhammad, like Catholic Church, all these 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 are also comics. They fall into our purview and are and they should be protected just as well. And and I and I extend that to last year's kerfuffle over the 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 cover uh, for for Batwoman or the the cover of Spider Woman. Or how they're you know re representing. Yeah, Was you may Batgirl? not like it. 
was it Batgirl? Batgirl, yes. Bat- yeah. Yeah, yeah, Batgirl. So, so those extend into the kerfuffles, and and this, I'll I'll push the conversation in this direction. I had a hard time with that cover issue because, uh, fans demanded it be pulled before it ever hit the stands, and that's where my big issue with that was is that yes, you have every right to do that. You can do a hashtag cancel the cover and all that kind of stuff, but, but. What these people were trying to say was, we don't like this cover enough to prevent it from going to market and let the consumer decide whether or not they like that cover. And that's where there is no clear-cut legal mumbo-jumbo. It is just truly a philosophical, almost, almost an entirely sub- subjective line to draw in that respect. Right, and that goes that 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 really plays into the the mob mentality we were talking about before. The yeah, it was it was a cyber mob. It was they, yeah. they were mad, and 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 the arguments they were levying. While we can maybe go into them if you want to, you 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 have read you you have a copy of the Seduction of Innocence, don't you, Andrew? I do. You've read that. I've, so I have, issue, I have read it in part, but yes. In part, yeah. And there's a great New York Times video on YouTube called Retro Report where they talk about music and they mention this mention this a little bit. And it's these fights have been going on in popular culture for a long time. They cause harm. They, they are offensive. They cause kids to get violent or men to be misogynist or women to chop off, we- whatever it is. It's, and these claims, A, fall flat on their face, but B, are still part of the continuum of free expression in art. But what I'm noticing, too, is that in, in the most current iteration of that very old, very played out argument is not just that these cause people to be violent and cause people to be misogynist and whatever. But this actually reminds me of a traumatic thing that may or may not have happened to me or a friend of mine or someone I heard about one time on the news. And and therefore I'm hurt. And it's almost right. like they're looking for a more direct link. So it's not just that this may cause this sort of nebulous violence among teenagers like video games are so often accused of, but also mm-hmm. this actually is hurting me right now. In this right, moment. The, so I believe you were referring to the, the trigger warning, right? This is triggering. So this is something that appeared, and there, and again, I'm going to just draw from Greg Lukianoff. He has a very short book called Freedom From Speech, and he dives into trigger warnings. And there's a couple great YouTube videos on it from Jonathan Rausch and feminist writer Christina Hoff Summers on, on trigger warnings and how these, these, these are crap, right? Because... Where it came from was blogs on PTSD that, you know, they're going to discuss heavy-duty topics on trauma, and it might trigger you. Uh, Donnell and I, you know, Donnell got into a car accident a few weeks ago, and we saw 10 Cloverfield Lane um, last night. And in the movie, a Carl gets rolled over. And she was sitting next to me, and I just kind of freaked out at the scene of Carl going getting rolled over, because that's what happened to her Subaru. It rolled over. Um, and very recently. Very recently. So the idea is that if you have PTSD, you were either assaulted or raped or in a war, or in the case of one of the presidents of the Center for Inquiry yelled at a Twitter, uh, you have what, PTSD so from that. Sorry, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, keyword right, being right. traumatic. traumatic. So the problem is is that, and, and this had started in Oberlin College and UC Santa Barbara, and again, it's pretty well documented by Reason TV and the New York Times is that they want these trigger warnings to warn students that in The Great Gatsby there's girl punching and misogyny or, or in, in 
Moby Dick, there's blasphemy and stuff like that. And they want to warn them ahead of time. So that way uh, students can prepare themselves. And, and already there was an article, when this started, uh, an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education from seven Harvard professors saying, this is crazy because we're already getting complaints about trigger warnings because it's hamstringing us. Because we can't, you can't trigger warn everything because the key about being triggered is not so much the content of the car being rolled over. It could be the color of the car triggers you. And the second problem to this is you've got this big, broad swath of what could be triggering. So basically it covers everything. And then you're basically telling people with PTSD, uh, you can't get better. We are going to bubble wrap the world around you, and you cannot get any better, even though the point is, and, and a couple psychologists have said that these trigger warnings are counterproductive because the you will not grow you psychologists or shrinks want their patients to get better so if you you'll never prevent... be desensitized to these issues exactly. because yeah. you're yeah. never going to confront them ever well um, yeah. and i was in education because specifically we're talking about colleges here i mean a lot of the point of higher education is to expose you to things that make you question what you think what you currently believe make you uncomfortable make you think absolutely yes. And, and there's some really, and unfortunately it's been backfiring. There's some studies to show that, um, <laughs> I can't remember the study. I'll send you the video where I, I heard it. They, they tested students' ability to critically think over the course of the four years at college. And 45% of the kids showed no discernible increase in critical thinking skills after four years. And, which and, which and is staggering and terrifying. Terrifying. And this is this is our generation. And 45%. If you worked at the Norfolk Botanical Gardens for four years, your critical thinking skills will increase. And 45% of these college kids weren't. The other big scary thing is that the First Amendment Institute at the museum, uh, not museum, but museum. Right. It's up a, in DC, a museum of, of news. Does like their state of the First Amendment. And millennials are the worst. 40-something percent of millennials are starting to think that, and I have the study, so I can send those to you, are thinking the First Amendment is going too far because we've got a, you know, because of racist speech, hate speech, trigger warnings, and all this other stuff. So it's, well, it's really troubling. Your college years are the time when you learn. So, so that idea that you don't have to live outside your bubble, that's a very immature idea. That's a very juvenile idea. It's a thing that yeah. most people are born with. Um, you, you, you grow up sort of in a bubble, even your high school, even if you have a fairly large high school, the high, high schools tend to be fairly homogenous. You know, you don't, you don't yeah. spend a lot of time on critical thinking in these days with the SOLs and the SATs and all that stuff. You're really not learning to think at all. You're really learning to take a test. So you get out of that and you go, now I went to a public Ivy liberal arts college and the one thing that they promise will happen to you while you are there for four years is that you will learn to critically think. That is, that is why they exist. If they didn't exist, they may as well be a tech school because at a tech school, there's quite a, a bit less of an emphasis outside sure. of, you know, on, on that, on that aspect. As a side note, and, dude, I think you and I just got called out. We did. <laughs> I thought about that halfway through my sentence. I was like, God damn it. No, no, we, we did, but but I, I believe it dovetails beautifully into this point. So there's a great video, two great videos out there, and again, also of, of a guy named Charles Allen Kors, or Alan Charles Kors. He's one of the founders of FIRE. And he talks about, he was a professor at, he's a professor at Pennsylvania University. He founded this. And he talked about, and you, Andrew, you and I are going to reminisce about this for one second. Oh, back in the 60s and 70s. When the rules were much less strict, it, and, and 
it was not uncommon for professors to spend extra time with their students, go to the bar, argue with them, share drinks. That was very common back then. That, that, that was where that secondary education came in, that sub-level education of the informal exchange of ideas and, and on a personal level really came through. Now, yes, we went to an engineering school, a non-Ivy League, under-the-bridge, troll-living tech school. But, as Andrew will point out, we got really lucky in our college experience because our humanities department was kind of like, okay, look, you're an engineering school, we're not going to kill you on humanities. But we had really good humanities professors who would share with us their ideas and their notions of ideas and what they thought was important to know on a non non-formal basis. And we would go to the bar with them. Many of our professors yes. were our drinking buddies. And and so we got I don't Andrew, I want you to the reason why I'm bringing this is I want you to appreciate how lucky we were to experience that. I thank my lucky stars almost now almost every day for the last couple of years that I had that experience with multiple professors where we would finish class, you know, in a professional uh, a formal environment and we would do our work. And, and, and then we would go to the bar. I remember Chris, our friend Chris, we're drinking with one of our history professors and we're having a good time. And he's going, Chris, you got to hand in your paper. Otherwise, you're going to have to fail you. Here's a beer, right? That was, yeah. that, was the way, that, was, that was the way it was done years ago. We've lost that. And I, and I, I kind of well, lament the know, loss of it. I, I, I would I, say. Yeah, I was going to say. You know, I, I agree. I think some of, some of the best learning experiences we had from those professors – came from those one in particular we were talking with with one of them and he said you know i don't understand why we teach a lot of the literature in in these classes that we teach in that as a 19 or 20 year old college student you don't have the life experiences you really truly need to fully understand and accept the you know this material and that just on a concept level that blew my mind that the professor oh, yeah. who the I, professor who who six hours ago was teaching me the material says, "Yeah, it's good for you to have exposure to this, but you're really not getting it on the level you should be, and you won't for years." Yeah, a great example of that is Death of a Salesman. A oh great yeah. Exa- I, yeah. I read Death of a Salesman in high school, saw it perform, saw the movie in high school. Then ten years later, while I was still living with you, um, I had a bad breakup. I went to go see it at the Wells in Norfolk. And it was 10 years later and I'm watching it going, there's all this crap I never picked up on. All this stuff is going, holy crap. This is why this is the famous play that it is. You want, yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing it when I'm 40 and freaking out again. So yeah, that's, that, yeah. that's absolutely true. Uh, Tracy, you were going to say something. Go ahead. Well, I'm just saying that my experience is very much similar to the more modern experience with a little bit of a twist in that I happened upon some amazing professors as well. That first of all, it helped that I was an adult student. Um, your professors just there. There was a different, a little bit of a different. I mean, and I would respect them, and I would t- definitely take more of a um, subordinate position. I I didn't, you know, well, talk I, I to mean, them. I, I think that goes a little bit to our point in terms of as a as a call as a normal college student, you would have a much different perspective than like right. you, I mean, you were you were effectively ten almost ten years older than most of your your classmates. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a huge difference. And, and you're, so, you're the age group that generally gets in trouble with the school because you've lived life 
and you're not indoctrinated with the trigger warning, oh, microaggression crap. And those are the students that generally get in the most trouble. That's not the only reason Tracy got in trouble. You got, well, there's that. You got a lot yeah. of arguments with the school over various things. I did. <laughs> I, I, I challenged them on a lot of th things. Um, but, you know, again, kind of goes to your point, dude, that, yeah, I lived life. So most of my stuff was with administration, though, not with faculty. But anyway, so one of the big points that I think that this is an important conversation that we're having right now is Can I because... drop a factoid on you real quick about admin, then you Do can it. continue? And since 2005, the number of administrators on average in American colleges have outnumbered the number of professors. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I just wanted, I, when you mentioned admin, I, want, I need that to be said because not all of this is ideological. Some of this is just the, 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 the Orwellian pressure of bureaucrats. Bureaucrats. That's exactly right. I mean, everything has to be a committee because if any one person makes a decision, then the, all of the repercussions for that decision comes down to one person. Whereas for me, I would submit something and then I would be told no. And then I would say, well, I filled out all the paperwork. Can I appeal? Yes, you can appeal. Well, where does the appeal go? To the head of the committee that just refused you. Yep. What? <laughs> yep. 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 What are you talking about? But anyway, so my point is that this is a very timely conversation because as comic books and the graphic novel medium of storytelling and of information sharing is growing, we're actually seeing that seep into the classroom. For instance, right now in international relations and international theory, there are about a dozen new graphic novels that actually are theory books. These are designed to be textbooks but they are drawn, they are drawn in the serial um, manner. This is a graphic novel, essentially, that the, and, and my professors are assigning them. So they're handing these out to students or requiring that they purchase them for class to be discussed yeah. in class. And so comics specifically have, as we've talked about on the blog several times, have gone through this very strange um, growth and they've been uniquely picked on by government mm -hmm. Um, bureaucracies for the, the manner in which they portray information. Yeah. So as we head into a new world in which this is accepted by the ordinary person as a way to share information, we have to be very careful about making sure that the people that use it are free to use it in every way. Mm -hmm. and, and this came about, uh, came to a head last year at a college can't remember. I had meant to look it up, but I had forgotten the time change. That both the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund and Fire jumped in on, uh, where a young girl, young woman, was in a literature class of some type, and certain comic books were assigned to her. I remember this. Yes, and oh, and she yeah, freaked she freaked out at the content, and basically, thank goodness the school stood its ground on this one. Oh, and, it was and Fire. Um, had, I think it was I think it was Sandman. Yeah, it was, it was a few of them. Sandman, Persephonal, Persephilus. Persepolis. Per Persepolis, um, a few others. And she says, this is awful, this is pornography, this is terrible, and, and this needs to be, uh, it wasn't, no trigger warning, and it's full of all this other stuff. And thank goodness Fire and the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund jumped in, and the school stood its ground, and, and that was what we needed to do, is a no, this is part of your, your, your uh, curriculum, you need, this is what you're going to do. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase uh, a guy named Douglas Murray, who is a part of the Henry Jackson Society in England. He did a podcast with Sam Harris about all sorts of stuff a few weeks ago, a few months ago. But there's one part of that podcast that is amazing, where they cover this idea of trigger warnings and being exposed to stuff. And basically, he says this: 
what good are you? If you need trigger warnings and micro and have microaggressions towards literature, well, then you're no good for literature. Because what do you have? Do you have no discernment of your own? Right. It's a, and, you're, you're you're no good for literature because you can't you can't read Lolita, right? And if you and if you if you trigger if you're triggered by rape statistics and and the description of violence, then you're no good to the law. And if and if you're triggered by your worldview being changed, you're no good to biology because you can't handle evolution or you can't handle Heidegger or you can't handle you're no good if you need this you're not what good are you and it's it's a fantastic screed he goes on it's a gear that Sam Harris and I don't have and he says as much but it's really really interesting and 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 I'm gonna dovetail this back into comic books because comic books since the 50s have been beaten up by all sorts of foes. Child psychologists in the 50s, the religious for a very long time, and now this kind of progressive cultural Marxist left has come in and, and taken swipes at them and video games. And I think it's something that, you know, you don't have to, my point was, look, you don't have to like Conan the Barbarian, okay? I like Conan the Barbarian. He's big dude who cuts dudes' heads off, buys consorts and smacks them around when they get mouthy. Okay, I like Conan. That's me. You can like whatever religious, feminist, whatever thing is out there. That's what the beauty of the market is. But that doesn't mean you got to turn around and say, Conan is bad. We have to rewrite Conan so it conforms to a prefab political agenda. Because that's the stuff well, Camille Paglia talked about. You can't do that. I'm going to approach it from a completely different angle. So I was raised as a fundamentalist. Uh, Christian, and there was quite a bit of censorship in the, in our home growing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, to the point that books that we would purchase would have the bad words scribbled out, um, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So approaching it from that angle, and this goes back to what I said about discernment, when you are in elementary school, I, I think it is wise for a parent to monitor what their children is, are reading what they're seeing on TV, that kind of thing, because your your maturity level is, you know, down here. It's real small, right? It's just between your uh, centimeter, you know, you're little. And then mm -hmm. you get to middle school and then God knows you're horny and you're greasy and you're disgusting, you stink. Um, but you're growing and you're learning about stuff, or right? Some people, and Some people don't grow past that stage, but... Yeah, I was there, about there to are say, many... I'm, still, I'm still in that phase right now. <laughs> I just woke up. <laughs> Um, so, but you're only, you've only grown so much, right? So there, there's, there's this next section of appropriate content that you can look at. And again, it's up to the parent to decide. So if the parent gets into high school and, and there's a lot of talk about centers, especially on the CBLDF website, they'll talk about, you know, censorship of high school curriculums and that kind of thing. And, and that's kind of where for me, I see it as sort of two pronged. So do I think a high school should have to censor what they're, sending to the kids, if they feel that it is um, age appropriate, no, but then it's the parents um, prerogative on the open market to go to another school. We were homeschooled because my, my mom didn't like what the public school system was offering, right? So it, it's her prerogative to pay extra money. Now, the fact that our taxes do go to high, I mean, she didn't care. She was like, I pay my taxes like a, like a good citizen and that's fine. And I support the high school and whatever in that way. But then I also pay for a curriculum and I school my children at home. That's fine. When you hit college, you get to choose every class you take. If that class is required for your major, change your major. 
You're an adult. It's now up to you to decide the direction that you want to go. If you don't like that kind of thing, don't take the class. If the class is required for your major, change your major. If it's that important to you, if it's not that important to you, you don't need a trigger warning. So so we just mentioned uh, censorship a little bit, and and that that is actually a a topic for another podcast. Because I think, especially with comic books, there's a long, um, disturbing history involved. And I think it's it's a topic worth digging into much deeper. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I, it, it kind of, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but right. But yeah, we. But so, so the, the the question I want to now pose to you guys is: Do you feel there are limits to free speech? Do you want me to take this one first? Yeah, go so, for it. So yes, there are, and I kind of touched upon them in the beginning. Troop movements during wartime. Obviously, you can't do that. Fraud, can't lie. There was a big famous Listerine case about Listerine cures the cold. Um, my friend Mark Charisse is a, as a PhD in the First Amendment. He can tell, talk more about that. Also, fantastic children's magician. Unbelievably so so good at that. And if he ever listens to this, I just want to put that on record. Mark Charisse in York, Pennsylvania, fabulous children's magician. I mean, just, I can't do kids' magic. I remember one time when I moved. I'm, can't, I'm and, can't and won't. No one, yeah. But yeah, so fraud, incitement to violence, troop movements during wartime, that a form of harassment that was um, defined by the Supreme Court as persistent, pervasive, objectively and subjectively offensive to a reasonable person. They, they've set that up. There's already that definition out there. I can send you the court case if you want to see it. So yeah, there's a little bit of de- debate about libel and slander. Or libel and slander. In certain countries, you can't libel or slander someone. Uh, Dr. Walter Brock, who's like this crazy anarcho-capitalist theorist, wrote a book called Defending the Indefensible and kind of makes his argument as why libel and slander shouldn't be illegal. That's probably a debate for another time. But I think the basic limits to speech are when you can show that a great deal of truly bodily harm is going to be caused. And the problem a lot of these censors have today is they have eroded the difference between actions and words. If there's a 2006 debate from uh, IQ, uh, Intelligence Squared, IQ, IQ2, uh, between on one side, a cartoonist from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Christopher Hitchens and Philip Gurevich on the pro-free speech side. And then uh, on the other side, David Cesarani, uh, Mary Matsuda and Daisy Khan on the anti-free side. And, and one of them, I think it was Mary Matsuda, dissolves the difference between words and actions. And she says at one point, towards the end of the debate, sticks and stones aren't the only things that break bones. And that's a distinction that needs to be hit head on. We can't let people get away with that. See, and I agreed with you almost up and just right up until about the last maybe 45 seconds of what you were saying, because... I think that this is where the connection uh, for her can be. So we now live in a globally connected world with the internet. And now at this point, um, Facebook is creating these Facebook phones that will go into uh, third world. Well, I guess we don't call them third world developing nations. Um, Don't, 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 don't PC that they are the third world. Let's just. Okay. So, well, but they're, they're on their way up, which Facebook phones are, Absolutely um, they are. Are, are part of it, right? So that they can connect to, I think, Facebook and like one other website, MSNBC, something. Yeah. So, so we've got Facebook phones in Africa. We've got Facebook phones in India, um, Pakistan, where 
forever so that you can connect uh, with the rest of the world. So we're, we're a, a very connected globe now. So if I, and I tend to make my profile um, or my, my username the same, no matter where I am. So if you find me on Reddit, you find me on Twitter, you find me on Facebook, whatever, it's always the same. If you dislike something that I have sent me on Reddit and you follow me around and you send me private messages hey, and you harass you me. On... Okay. We, we lost you for a moment there again. We, we lost yeah. what, what came before follow me, find me on Reddit. I, I, too, use the same names on all my websites, especially my Pornhub account. It's the same ones. You just find me there. <laughs> well, my point is that if you, if you were to look for me, you could find me on multiple social media platforms. And if you're mm -hmm. following me from social media platform to social media platform, you have my email address. You, maybe you are someone who knows me or is able to get a hold of my cell phone number. And you're sending me tweets. You're sending me Facebook messages. You're sending me private messages all over social media. You're sending me texts that are all aggressive, angry things that you disagree with something that I have to say. I would say that that's harassment and that's not covered by the First Amendment. It's not actions, but... Right. But I thought I had covered that. Maybe I didn't. But, but the idea is that if someone followed me around and said, I love you, I love you, I love follow all the... Yeah, that's still harassment. But again, the Supreme yeah. Court has set down a pretty good definition that I think, again, like the First Amendment, we should apply. We should have many First Amendments in our personal lives that, yeah, we have to set our own boundaries. But yeah, harassment, I, I believe, I'll say, uh, I'll say it this time, per severe, persistent, pervasive, objectively, subjectively offensive, and most importantly, to a reasonable person. You have to have that reasonable person standard in there. So, so and yes, you, I would agree with that. You did mention that, but what, what the thing that you said last was that you have to separate words and actions, and I don't think that you can necessarily do that in a world where we are so well-connected, um, that you might live in Africa, but you can still get a hold of me and do something harassing to me. You can still do some harassing. However, the, the analogy to violence is what that, that last sentence was supposed to be about. And, and Rausch covers it in his book, is that words aren't bullets. Bullets are bullets. Try getting yelled at versus shot, and you can tell the difference. That's the point we're trying to make here. And when you see, again, with the, the Batgirl cover, where it was just violence against Batwoman, or Batgirl or Batwoman? Batgirl. Girl. Batgirl. Girl, sorry. I just uh, lose track of them a little bit. Um, you know, it's this violence against, in this case, women, and it's and it's a violent image, and it's an assault on the psyche of the young readers. These, these are a truth claims that need to be verified, but b a greased precipice, as Philip Gravich would say, on which to perch yourself. That once you concede that point, then you leave open the door to having a having cancel that cover switch from being a hashtag to being conducted with Kalashnikovs. And that's where I think we need to we need to put the stakes in the ground and say, no, you know, over this line you don't cross. Yes, we'll give you harassment, but you can't claim that images are assaulting. Interesting. And I have to feel, I feel that that's, it's very immature of any person to admit. And of course the internet these days is pervaded by, you know, middle schoolers in that middle of that horny, greasy stage. But yeah. For, it's very immature for a person to admit that they cannot separate. What you're essentially admitting is that you can't separate fact from fiction. A, mm -hmm. a drawn image that doesn't even look realistic um, mm -hmm. is, is, is very much um, a caricature of real life. You're not able to separate those things, then perhaps you need a different type of help that isn't covered 
Yeah, uh, I mean, and Andrew and I sat through a couple of uh, lectures from the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and and the the topic there was manga that that had young-ish or very young involving uh, sexual images from from Japan, where that became a huge issue. Well, and to be and to be to be clear on that one, it wasn't even it wasn't even like young characters. It was in a childish art style. Right. Um, the, the Japanese have, and I actually think this is kind of cool, just from a conceptual standpoint in manga, they will often switch art styles to depict emotions and concepts. Yeah. So they may they may have a more childish style to depict someone in a moment of innocence, and then after an event happens, they'll change to a different style to, con- to, per- to convey that loss of innocence. And, and sure. in in... In this particular case, it was something along those lines that that was causing this issue, and it honestly, in, in large extent, that's a, it was is a cultural a lack of cultural understanding that they just jumped to a rather rather radical con, uh, conclusion. Yeah, and I I have to say that I see both sides of this issue. I I see why someone would have a problem with that type of art, but at the same time, since no one is actually being exploited. I think that the right decision was made. Yeah, and I think that again, we're we're talking about images. Um, I mean, you I know, mean, that's the 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 CBLDF president's. That, that was his big thing. No yeah. children are harmed by an in the by, draw- the, by these images. Yeah, no children are harmed in the in the drawing of this image. What, what generally we start to hear is uh, the other argument I've been hitting or getting getting bumped up against is well. You know, this contributes to a climate of X. So image X contributes to a climate of X. So I have, and I had this discussion with Kevin Eastman way back in, I think, 2008 or 2009 when he was still coming to New York City about the the books, um, the Italian books of Druna, which are science fiction books that are explicitly uh, violent and sexually violent. And, and the main character, Druna, I think is probably sexually assaulted or raped twice per book. And, and really, she, she manages to, like, persevere and kick the crap out of everyone. They're really bizarre, strange books. But they're banned in Canada, right? They're banned in Canada. He can't get them, and so they're difficult to distribute. I thought uh, Donald Duck was also banned in Canada. Or was that, it Finland? Because he has no pants. <laughs> I don't know. That's That would be fun to look up. But does that so, mean, Hey, does that mean I would be banned in Canada right now? All right. <laughs> hey, listen. I put my pants on. You can see that. They're right here. Oh, shit. <laughs> Um, so great, great way to use vid- visuals on an audio podcast. Yeah, that, that was for radio. Uh, any way to get the joke out. So, so, so we, they can make the argument that Druna contributes to a cultural norm that that women's bodies can be used and abused in any way, and and, and the same thing, video games contributes to a cultural norm that violence is a is a good way to sort. These these arguments are about and. And I think for the most part, again, it should be pointed out, they are truth claims that can't be substantiated. And B, if you don't like Druna and you don't like Assassin's Creed, don't buy them. Buy, yeah. there was an article yeah. in the Daily Beast about some feminist car- comic book author draw changing the face of comic books with her feminist. Fantastic. All right, good for her. She should absolutely, I think she was writing like Miss Marvel or Superwoman or whatever. She was writing one of these. Absolutely, just don't you dare let her write Conan. That's all I would say. Just, <laughs> just leave that alone. And, well, and, and you know, talking, talking to comic book creators, 
those that have been most successful that we that we've seen are the ones who say, "Hey, there's there's no book out here like this. I want to read a book like that. I'm going to write a book like that." Yes. Yeah. And that's the beauty of the market is that we have a plurality is that is that uh, you could have feminist Miss Marvel exists in the same universe as Conan or Druna or 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 just your standard Spider-Man comic. Right. You you can do that. There's a market for everyone. Some are going to be small, some are going to be big, but it doesn't mean an ideology has to be seeped into all of them to better the society around. The society gets better because there's a plurality of views. And the reason why there's a plurality of views and comic books is because we have and follow the concept of A, the market, and B, free speech. Boom. That's why our comic book market is as vibrant and interesting today as it's ever been. I, don't, I, think, I think it's a pretty good good spot to uh, end our discussion on on free speech. It's been surprisingly civil. I'm not going to lie. I mean, <laughs> except, it, it, except, it, except for the missing pants. Well, you know, I mean, it helps that you know you and Tracy are on opposite coasts, so it's hard to get in a fist fight. That <laughs> makes help. It, there's I'll there's reach at least for a, this microphone and bring you down. There's at least a six hour flight in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> cool down time. That's what I call it. Yeah. yeah. Ten days. I'm angry now. I want my <laughs> so I think we'll we'll go around here. Uh, start. We'll start with Jerry C this week. Tracy, what are you into? I just finished season five of Game of Thrones, right in time for season six. So I watched. You guys probably know. I went to Europe last summer. In the middle of that was the whole Game of Thrones season five. I got back. I watched the first half of it, and I sort of fell asleep halfway through every single episode. So um, I decided first, that I probably like, three had... quarters of that season were, were a little rough. It was real slow. So um, the last was pretty good. Also, I really appreciated the whole Cersei scene at the last. Of course, she's probably not going to reform as a person, but it's okay. I was cool to see just to see her humbled a little bit. So I wrapped up season five and then discovered that season six doesn't come on for a month and a half. <laughs> so probably should have timed that better. I honestly dug season five just because I was impressed that they were able to condense that monster book down into. 13. Oh my god! Right? Re- realistically, I, it's like a monster book and a half. Yeah, and so the fact that they just did it as concise and as as clear and and it was easy to follow, you didn't get lost. I think they deserve an Emmy just for that. Well, and they also they don't beat the reader over the head with stuff, or the reader, the watch, the viewer. So, like. They kind of gave you clues as to where you were in the series. For instance, uh, Shireen, the daughter of Stannis Baratheon, mentions um, something about reading a book called Dance with Dragons. And I'm like, okay, cool. It was nice of them to kind of let me know where they are in the series and that from this point we're kind of moving forward into uncharted waters. Um, and since I've completely given up on George R. R. Martin, I'm very happy for that because now we're actually progressing with the story. Have you seen the, yeah. uh, the online... It's like a... It's not. I don't think it was originated by the Onion, but the post where he basically said, "I'm going to pull a Willy Wonka and just let someone else take over for me." <laughs> no, I oh haven't seen god. that. Yeah. I, oh my god. No, I, but I'm I sort, do I'm, enjoy. It's, um, it's not an actual George R. R. Martin quote, but he's like, "Nah, fuck this shit. I'll hire some. I'll hire some other some nerd yeah. to do it for me." No, but I have seen that series of Conan um, episodes where he shows he has like a secret camera on George R. R. Martin <laughs> at all times, showing all the things he's doing except writing. Um, that's really funny. And I'll throw that in show notes. And then 
Um, I've sort of recently read a couple of old books that I read when I was in high school. And I talked about that on a blog post last week. So I'll link that in the show notes too. Um, but other than that, I've been exploring a new city. I just moved to Washington, D.C. So I'm spending a lot of time on buses and not a lot of time on uh, pop culture. <laughs> Dude, what about you? Well, I'm still... Uh, on the Conan stories from Robert E. Howard we talked about last time. Uh, I finished one of the shorts. I'm in the middle of another. But when I was taking Donnell's PT Cruiser for the used car inspection before she settled on it, yep. uh, it, was, it, was either, it was either that or a Mini Coupe. And then when we found out the Mini Coupe needed $3,000 worth of work, vice the you know $200 that the PT Cruiser needed. Well, that seems uh, like an easy answer. Yeah, it was an easy answer. But I had about two hours to kill, so I was in Barnes & Noble, and I was... Uh, Digging through the history section, I picked up the Spartacus Wars by uh, I think the guy's name is Brian Strauss I think, and it just it just covers the rise and fall of the Spartacus revolt. Um, so it's a hist- it's purely historical, but it came with good recommendations. The guy who wrote the kind of one of the big definitive Caesar biographies had good things to say about it, as did a guy named Victor David Hansen, who uh, is from the Hoover Institute, who I've, I'm vaguely familiar with. So I'm about 50 pages into it, and it is very, very, very good. He he really does make use of primary sources, and he's very careful to note when he's being speculative because we really don't know a lot about Spartacus. So he's really saying, hey, you know, he probably would have been pudgy because a lot of those gladiators had fat around the middle to protect themselves from. He was probably Thracian. He was probably a cavalry auxilia. He became a, you know, this is how he probably wound up here. And here's the reasons why. He, right. This is what Vero says. This is what Cyrano says. This is this is what this guy says. But this guy says this, but he was 150 years later. But he's basing it on what this guy said, and we don't have sources from him. So it's actually really, really, really well written. I would I would recommend it. Um, and then uh, we I saw Ten Cloverfield Lane last night, or the night before uh, the night before, and I've never seen a movie kick itself in the dick so hard in the last five minutes. Unbelievable. It, I was so on board with this movie. What the about, girl from Scott, what Scott about, Pilgrim. What about is in Sunshine? It. Sunshine. I didn't see Sunshine. Okay. I was thinking. I was thinking like more like Signs because I was talking with Rich. I said, "Can you think of a movie that kicked itself in the dick this hard, where you were so on board with this movie until the last five minutes, and you're like, what the fuck?" And then I saw an anime called Only Yesterday. I was going to go see 45 Years. I had bought the ticket for 45 Years. I'm walking up the ramp to 45 Years. And then the theater on the left had an anime, and I just changed directions. And <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't have, because the, the story is that non-Miyazaki Studio Ghibli movies don't really hold up very well. And this one was no exception. It was rather drab. And then Donnell has this TV show on called Shadow Hunters that I've, I've never seen before, it, and it's just full of hot people. I have It's some sort of supernatural, but it's just nothing but hot people. That's annoying. I hate that. What? That's, that's one of my huge pet peeves, like Arrow, where no one is not good-looking. It's frustrating. I mean, they, are, they are all gorgeous, and like the lead is this hot redhead, and I'm like, I have no idea what's happening, and this all seems stupid, but everyone is eye candy. <laughs> Everyone is like, so I could just watch these people. Nice. It's amazing. So, and then we decided to restart Rick and Morty because it's coming back at the end of the year. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, I I have also started uh, reading Conan. I'm about halfway through the first uh, short. The Sword in the Phoenix. Yeah. It, I mean, aren't they something? No, it's it's a lot. It's a lot better than I than I thought it was going to be. Um, I'm, re- noticed- I'm really enjoying it. 
Have you noticed his kind of backward sentences? He, he writes things in kind of, look for these, because I've noticed them and I, I forgot to note them, but he's, he's since stopped doing it because I'm a little bit later in his writing. He has these sentences that seem to be written backwards. He starts with a predicate. He, is, he, I, is he German originally, or is he trying to write someone who is Germanic? Because that's how I, they start of, their sentences. They start I, with, I, with I, the verb clause first. It's, it's weird. I, I wish I had an example, but just keep an eye out for just strangely organized sentences that okay. seem like backwards from the way you would actually say them. He writes them. He has since stopped, like after the Scarlet Circle, if you have the same edition I have, after the Scarlet Circle, that kind of function of his writing disappears. But yeah. that was, it was curious what that was. Okay. I mean, Tracy probably could tell me better if she saw them. But that's, but... Yeah, so, uh, so I've been doing that. It's you're talking about movies that kick themselves in the dick that at the end there, Sunshine. I actually got so angry I walked into the movie theater for a couple like I was the last ten minutes of the movie, I got up and stormed out of the theater and then remembered I was like poor college student and then the movie was almost over and went back in. <laughs> but, but I angri- oh, yeah, I, was... I angrily paced the lobby for about two minutes before going back in. Yeah, and and I, was... I I'm I was so angry at the end of that movie. Uh, yeah, I was a little inconsolable. I was like texting to Rich, and my girlfriend's like, "Who are you texting?" She's like, "I was like, do you want me to write it out for you? You want me to dictate?" I'm like, "I'm I'm snapping at her for no good reason because I'm mad at this movie." Nice. Uh, it's probably most of what I've been doing. Just reading. I, I was working a, a really early day shift, so I was getting up at four thirty in the morning, which meant I was getting going to bed at like eight thirty just to get enough sleep. Although apparently that wasn't enough because I came home Friday. Becky and I went and got dinner, and then I passed out for no shit fourteen hours. Yeah, I, I fell as- I fell asleep at five thirty and got up at seven thirty the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> which is well, least- which is really disappointing, but it was really disappointing because there goes my Friday. Right. The, the I, only I re- the only benefit to that is that I'm 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 shifting to a uh, an afternoon shift this week, so I, I I have all I get I can stay up late tonight and have tomorrow morning. There you go. I, I remember one time I got back from work th- this past year, got tired, laid down on the couch, and, and must have fallen into what I assume was temporary death. <laughs> and, I, and I woke up, and it, I saw 7.30, and I, I and all the lights are still on, right? All my lights are still on. So, right. I, so I can't tell what time it is. So I just see 7.30, and I go, I'm like, go, shit, I'm late for work. I'm late for work. Holy fuck. I'm I'm so late. I'm getting dressed. I'm and I open I open the door and I look up and it's dark and I go, oh, it's still the same day. It's, <laughs> it's still the same day. I was convinced. I was I was if it were still light outside, I was gonna drive halfway down 94 to the base before I realized there's no traffic. What the fuck's going on? I I had I've done that before. I've actually like gotten up, showered, gotten dressed, and I'm standing there fully dressed, ready to leave for work staring at the clock because it's not making sense to me it's, like, <laughs> it's 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 amazing when that happens that, that ha- that'll happen to me about once every two years i'll do that <laughs> where i yeah and, and it'll it'll be something like yeah I'll, I'll i'll look out the window and like it's really dark out I'm like why is it still dark out at eight eight o'clock that doesn't <laughs> and I look and i look at the clock and it's just like one in the morning and i'm like but that just said eight <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm I'm sitting there convinced, like I'm arguing with the clock. All right, folks, if you like what we do, make sure you head on over to thereforeigeek.com. Check out our blog posts and our podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. 
And you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes, Stitcher, and we are also now on SoundCloud. Woohoo! Yay, SoundCloud! So once again, I'm Subscribe. Andrew. Oh, I'm Tracy. Like, share, comment. I'm Joseph. And you've been listening to Therefore I Geek. <laughs>